Bible and join me. If you didn't bring a Bible, take the one out in front of you. There's no excuse. We have got more Bibles in this church than we have people. So take out the Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 17. And as you're opening that up, I'll remind you that if you do not own a Bible, um, we have a newly established fund here at St. John's, the Dwayne Arnold Bible Fund, um, that has been designated to be able to provide Bibles um, to anyone who has a need. And that includes all of the pew Bibles in the pew. So if you don't own a Bible, or for some of us, most people own a Bible, but it might be the Bible that your great, 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 great grandma passed down, and it looks like English, but it doesn't sound like English because we don't say thou art, all that stuff anymore. This one is a modern translation, and so we would love for you to take it home with you as our gift to you. Uh, but we're going to be beginning now in Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But when Jesus came and touched them, he said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to think back to a single moment in time that if you could go back, you would so that you could relive that moment. What moment is that for you? Think back for a minute. It might take a minute. What's one moment that if you could just go back in time, if you could bottle it up, if you could be transported there, if you could just stay in that moment for all of time, you would because it was a taste of heaven, what moment would that be? Maybe it's your wedding day. Maybe, maybe the sun was shining on that day and the flowers were fresh and vibrant and, and everybody that you love was there and you saw nothing but hope and potential in your future. That, that's the day that came to your mind when I asked the question. Maybe for you it's something a lot simpler. Maybe it was just a simple morning where you were sitting out on your front porch with a cup of coffee, but it was a, it was a perfect morning. The sun was shining, the sky was blue, the birds were singing, the, the breeze just gently brushed across your face. Everything around you just, just exuded this, this, this message in your mind and in your soul that God is good and creation is good and life is a gift and you could feel all of those things. 
Maybe for you, maybe, maybe, maybe heaven is food. Does anybody agree with that statement? Right, right? Like, it sounds kind of silly, but have you ever had a meal that's so good, you're actually frustrated when your stomach is full because you still want to eat, right? Right? And not, not in an overindulgence kind of a way, but it's just so good. Every, every taste, every flavor, it's, it's a taste of heaven and you wish that it would never end. Maybe, maybe it's sports. Maybe it's sports. Maybe you were really good at basketball, and there was this time in high school or college where your team was down by, by, by just a point, and, and, and you made the buzzer shot to win the game, and it was from half court, and everybody lifted you up, and they screamed, and you were the center of attention. If you could bottle up all of that affirmation and just live there forever, you would. Or, or maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's not one moment Maybe when I asked the question, you thought about a season. It was a whole season in life when your child was that perfect age or when you lived in that perfect house or that time when you had that perfect job or, or when your spouse had that perfect health. They were with you. Regardless of the answer to the question, we all have moments that stand out. Sometimes it's in the moment that we notice them. I remember that happening on my wedding day. I was telling my wife as I was preparing for this message. For me, it was getting in the car that morning. All the things that we had to do, all the craziness and the chaos. And I'll never forget stopping before I got into the car and just soaking it up. Because I knew this was a moment that I would want to last. And so sometimes that's the moment for us. We know what's happening as it's happening. But then other times we, we don't really appreciate the moments until we look back at the moment. But... But early on in my faith, I was reminded that the phrase, this too shall pass, you've heard that before? This too shall pass doesn't just apply to the things that we want to pass. It also applies to those things we don't want to pass. Our youth, our greatest successes and experiences, those moments that we wish we could relive forever. And so I want to indulge for a moment for this, this morning. I want to indulge in a question my kids ask me all the time when we go to the park, when we go to, when we go to, to, to uh, um, maybe, maybe go someplace where there's lots of fun things to do, friends' houses that they don't want to leave. The question they ask is, why do we have to leave? <laughs> and I want to ask that question this morning. Why, why do we have to leave these moments? Why can't we go back and, 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 and it's in transition to the final week of our series airplane mode. We're leaving this series where we have been asking the question, how do we disconnect from the things that draw us away from God and connect to God because God is the one that makes us whole. It's also a day in the church and the church all around the world known as Transfiguration Sunday, which we read about in our reading today. And if you read just that part of the reading, you might ask the question that if, if this whole goal of this series has been to disconnect and then to reconnect, that today must be the day that we've been working toward. Today must be the perfect culmination up on the mountain, Jesus transfigured before the disciples. And it's not quite what you think. It's a good moment, but it's, it's actually just one moment in time that's going to end just like the moment that ended for you just a few minutes ago. And, and what I mean by that is 
Because what I'll show you as we get into the context here, oftentimes context is important. If you come around for a while, you'll notice something, that we read this one verse at the beginning, and then we end up going back, and we end up going forward, because the Bible was not meant just to be read line by line. And so I want you to look at chapter 16 in the Gospel of Matthew, and and I want to take you back to the, the greater context of what we read just a minute ago. It starts with a question and, and Jesus is asking what people are, are saying uh, about who he is, right? This is his earthly ministry. People are talking about him. They're, they're asking, okay, who, who do people say that Jesus is? And then he makes it personal. And he says to the disciples, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter is the only one bold enough to answer. And he says this. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it's true, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And and Jesus affirms Peter in answering this question. And he does it in front of all the disciples. And and i got to believe that that felt really good to Peter to have Jesus say, good job to you. You are blessed in front of all of his friends. And he says to Peter, you are going to be the rock of the church. He actually gives him a new name, right? His name is Simon. He says, we're going to call you Peter because you are going to become the foundation of what I am about to build. That even the gates of hell are not going to be able to overcome this thing that is built upon you, the foundation, Peter. And I think about just chapter 18, right? They're asking who's the greatest in the kingdom. I think about the disciples fighting over who's going to sit next to Jesus. And I think, man, if this was the primaries and this was political, Peter's winning. (laughs) It might be early, but he's winning. He's done most of the fundraising. People think he's going to be the one to win the race. And you can tell that he doesn't want to leave this moment. And you can tell that because he tries to stay in the moment. But unfortunately for Peter, Jesus moves on. And it's this very abrupt transition. Verse 21, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and that on the third day be raised to life. When Alyssa and I got married on that wedding day that I paused and I stopped and I realized it was a significant moment. Um, on the way to the wedding, her Aunt Debbie, who lives in Milwaukee, she was driving on the freeway. I don't remember what freeway it was on, but she was on her way to the church. And she was involved in a very bad accident. She was okay physically. Her car was totaled. Um, we actually took a picture to remember the moment. There she is on the right. Uh, You can't see with the lighting. She had bumps and bruises and all these kinds of things. We were so very grateful. Actually, my my brother-in-law on the left, he got hurt the night before, which makes me think there were a lot of people hurt around our wedding. I'm not sure what that meant. But it caused us to pause when we heard that she had been in this car accident and go, oh my goodness, right? Is she okay? Can you imagine what it would have been like if she wasn't? Can you imagine what our wedding would have been like if she was not okay. And, and, and I was thinking about that this week, and I thought about another wedding that I officiated here. It was almost 10 years ago now, here at St. John's, where it was not lost on a single person that had entered this space, that the last time that that family had all gathered in this sanctuary was not for a wedding, but it was for the funeral of the bride's mother. And I know that that means, I know that that for many of you, you know what that's like. 
I actually talked to people after the 8 o'clock service. They knew exactly what wedding I was talking about because they were here too. You know what it's like to celebrate new life and hope with death hanging over the room. And that's what we have here. That's what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew in this particular context as Jesus turns the conversation from Peter and the rock and the gates of hell are not going to overcome and all of these wonderful things, right? And then he turns to his death. And so it makes sense what happens next in verse 22. Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus and says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Why? Because you just told me I am the rock. Okay, maybe that's not the same rock. But that is exactly who Peter thought Jesus was talking about. Jesus was to be Peter's personal trainer. And that is exactly who Peter, in his mind, thought he was going to become. That's who Peter wanted to be. I mean, come on, right? Who doesn't want to be that guy? He's like, he's like in his 50s and he looks like that, right? Like, my goodness. And now Jesus is talking about dying? He's talking about dying? How, how can Jesus make Peter into the rock if he's dead? And it's at this point you've got to start asking yourself the question, this is no longer about Jesus, is it? It's become about Peter. It's become about Peter, it's about Peter wanting to desperately live in a moment that has passed. A moment that he can't go back to, at least not in the way in which he thinks he's meant to live it. And because his brain is stuck in the past, he has completely missed the point that not only did Jesus say in plain words, and you can read it here in Matthew, that he's going to die. What else did he say he's going to do? Anybody? He's going to rise. Right? Because you've gone to Easter church before. You know the rest of the story, right? Jesus said it in plain sight. And yet Peter stopped listening when he heard the word death. Because all he could think about was that the best moment was already going to pass. I can't go back. It's all over. There's no hope. And that's why I asked the question at the beginning... Is there a moment for you that you wish you could go back to? Because we can relate to that, can't we? We can relate to Peter. We all have moments that we, we, we look back and we wish we could go back to as if that was the best that there is. There's, there's people that we, we so desperately wish we could spend time with. And, and, and if for you that, that moment isn't in the past, maybe it's the moment that you're living in right now today, which let me tell you that means that there might be a day in the future that you're going to look back to today and wish you could come back here. We're all like Peter. We all make it about ourselves we're all like Peter. We all want to go back. And that's what makes Jesus' response to Peter feel particularly harsh. Look at this in verse 23. He says, he says, get behind me, Satan. He called him the rock. And now he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely of human concerns. So what is it? Is he the rock or is he a stumbling block? Because if I'm going to build a foundation, I'm probably not going to use something that's referred to as Satan to build it, right? 
And yet in just a few verses, we've got Peter being referred to as both. And then you've got to ask yourself, why is this such a problem, right? Peter doesn't want Jesus to die. Is that really such a big deal? Well, it is. If through death, Jesus has something greater in store that comes after. And that's the story of Easter. You know the story. You've been to Easter church before. You've heard the rest of the gospel, right? But Jesus is telling them what's going to happen before it does. And he's showing them how to live in that hope even now. In verse 24, he said to the disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Read this part with me. For whoever wants to save their life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Have you ever heard those words before? You've got to lose your life to find it. If you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. What good will it be, Jesus continues, for somebody to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anybody give in exchange for their soul? See, the common denominator in every moment that you thought about, that you wish you could go back to, is that it's over. It's been lost. It's gone. You've had to give it up. Maybe you chose to. Maybe you didn't choose to. It's just time, right? It's, it's past. You can't stay there forever. This too shall pass is a cruel fact of life that nobody escapes. And, and that might make it look like on the surface Jesus is being insensitive, but what he's really doing is offering us hope beyond the moments that end, beyond the moments that die, beyond the places in life that we give up, a hope that there is a moment that's coming that is beyond what Peter or anybody can possibly imagine. See, Peter thought that, that he, was, he was being called to be the rock, right? That he was called to be, what's his name? Dwayne, right? right? Dwayne something, right? I just think of him as the rock. And Peter could only think of himself as the rock. And Jesus as the new David. That there was going to be this kingdom on earth and that he was going to be the second in command. But Jesus was calling Peter to be the foundation of the outpost of heaven on earth. It was even greater than what Peter could imagine. Jesus did not come into this world to make life better. He came into this world to overcome the thing that takes our life away. And that's death. He came to restore the perfection that he created the creation to be at the very beginning of time, this untainted garden of Eden, this nature that he made in Genesis as you read it, right? This is the way he made the world to be. He came to bring light into darkness, as John says it, that the darkness will never put out. He will return, says the revelation, is the groom. And you, the church, will be the bride welcomed into a banquet that will last forever. And I think about those images, which are biblical. And I think about the moment that you wish you could go back to. And I think about nature. And I think about weddings. And I think about new life. And I think about light. And it shows me that every moment that you've experienced Heaven on earth is but a glimpse 
of the moment that's coming that will never end. It's just a glimpse. Even the moment that you wish you could go back to pales in comparison to the moment that's coming. It's just God showing off by his grace, showing you a foretaste of the feast to come. Remember, it was, it was months and months before I proposed to Alyssa, I bought the ring. And I was like, like most young men, when you buy the ring, right? Like it's the most expensive thing you've ever spent money on. And so I had to protect it. It was hidden in a drawer in my apartment. And I bought it. And I didn't tell anybody about having bought the ring yet. I, I don't even think I had asked Alyssa's parents for their blessing yet. So I was confident <laughs> that, that, that I was going to receive it. We dated for like four years. So I was pretty sure I knew what was coming. But I didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew. Alyssa didn't know. And I was out walking one night. And I ran in the neighborhood. I ran into Alyssa's sister, uh, Lainey, and her boyfriend, now husband, Nathan. And they were just walking. We just happened to run into each other. And I was walking, and of course, I'm thinking about this wedding ring. And that's all I could think about, right? As soon as I bought it, it's all I could think about until I proposed. And I ran into them, and I could not take it anymore. I said, guys, do you have a few minutes? I want to take you back to my apartment. And they said, sure. And so I took them back to the apartment. I said, you got to promise me that you are not going to tell anybody. And I took out the ring, and I showed them the ring. And they said, ooh, right? I said, I haven't told anybody yet. I haven't shown anybody this. Nobody knows that I bought it. You cannot tell anyone until I propose. And so I'm reading this, this, this reading today, this, this transfiguration, this, this moment of grace where Jesus takes three of the disciples up a mountain and I can almost hear him in the same way that I was inviting my sister-in-law and brother-in-law back to my apartment to show them the ring. It's Jesus saying, come with me. Let me show you what's coming. Let me show you a glimpse. Verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. If you don't know anything about the Bible, let me show you how far back. We're all the way over here. You know how far back we have to go to meet Elijah? <laughs> we got to go all the way back here. You want to know how far back we got to go to meet Moses? We got to go even further back. You want to know why? Because these men are legends at this point. As far as anybody is concerned, they're dead. And yet up on this mountain as Jesus is shining in a way that words just cannot describe, he is having a conversation with them. And so you've got Peter again, right? Because he just talks. And so in this moment, he begins to speak and he says to Jesus, Lord, it is good to be here. This is the moment I want to relive. This is the moment that I don't want to leave. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, 
Moses, one for Elijah. And I can almost just imagine that he just continues to talk, right? Like, James and John and I, we're just going to sit here, and we're just going to live here. And I know you called me the rock, and I thought that was the moment, right? And then you called me Satan. I forgive you, Jesus, for calling me Satan, because I get it now. This has got to be the moment. This is what I was waiting for. This is what you were waiting for. This has got to be it. This is heaven. This is where I never want to leave. And it's in the middle of him just blabbering and saying those words that it says in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you have somebody in your life that just doesn't stop talking until you start talking? That's Peter. And so Peter's talking and God himself speaks from a cloud and he interrupts him. And he says, listen to my son. Listen to my son. And it says here that when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone about the ring until after the proposal. Why do we have to leave? Because Jesus was just showing them a glimpse of the ring. Jesus was just showing them a glimpse of the ring. And friends, every single moment that you wish you could go back to at its very best is but a glimpse of the moment to come in Jesus that will have no end. And I'm not making this up. This is biblical, okay? In the Old Testament, if we go back and we meet Elijah, we meet Moses, you'll see both of them had their own mountaintop experiences. You, you've probably seen the movie about Moses, right? He went up on Mount Sinai, right? And, and what did he receive when he went up on the mountain? Anybody? The law, right? The Ten Commandments, right? Elijah had a mountaintop experience too. This, this, this experience, I think about it all the time, right? In his exhaustion, he was up on this mountain and he heard the voice of God. And it was not through an earthquake, though there was an earthquake. And it was not through fire, though there was fire. It was not through a storm. It was not through any of those things. It was a still, small voice. You've got the law on a mountain, and you've got the voice of God through the great prophet on a mountain. And then you've got Jesus. Fast forward to the Sermon on the Mount. He says these words, Do not think that I have come to abolish what has happened on the mountain. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And the only way to fulfill them was to take them from the mountain and bring them down. Because love calls us off the mountain. Love says we can't stay here. Jesus did not come down from heaven to go up to a mountain. He came down from heaven to die on a tree outside of Jerusalem. He came to die for you and for me. And so out of love, he could not stay up there. Out of love for Peter, he could not let Peter live in that moment forever. And the transfiguration teaches us that neither can we. 
It's the culmination of the book that we read as part of this series by Rich Velotis, Good, Beautiful, and Kind. He, he gives us this, this definition of sin that I've, I've talked to a number of people that have really struggled with this definition, myself included. Let's read it together. Sin is a failure to love. And I've had more than one person tell me why they've struggled with that definition. And it's usually related to the fact that we don't think of sin this way. Some of us think of sin as, as, as being more complex than that, right? This is too simplistic. Isn't, isn't sin about breaking the law? I mean, isn't that what we teach? Is that not what sin is? Isn't sin about rejecting the call of God as we hear it through his voice as it is spoken through the prophets? And the answer is yes. Yes, that is what sin is. And that is why Jesus came to fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets. And he did not do it because he had to. He did it because he loves us. Bill referred to it. I'm not making this up either. Bill referred to it last week, Matthew 22. We referred to it at the very beginning of the series. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God. You've heard it before, right? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Say this part with me. All the law and prophets hang on these Two commandments. The law and the prophets are fulfilled through love. To not follow the law and the voice of God is to fail to love God and fail to love our neighbor. And the way to fulfill it is to love. And Jesus loved us first. When he came down off the mountain and died on the cross by showing us how his love would conquer our sin, every failure of love, by dying and rising first. And from that day forward, we look ahead, not behind. We look ahead to the day that he will return. We cannot relive the past. We can't do it. We can look back on the past with fondness knowing that the greatest memories in our life are but a foretaste of the feast to come when Jesus returns. And he promised he will. And it's why Martin Luther said this. He said in his calendar, this would be a lot simpler if we would take his advice. He said, in my calendar, there are only two days. This day and that day. This day, this moment that I'm living in right now, and the day when Jesus returns. We can't relive the past, but we don't just have the moment we're living in either. You only live once is not true for the Christian. You will live forever. Jesus is coming back. There is a moment that's coming. He may have ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he told the disciples, and he tells you and me, I am quoting him, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, what does he say? He says, will I not come back to take you, to be with me where I am for you? Know the way to the place where I am going. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he will return. And if you believe that to be true, then, then the late theologian Frederick Buchner, he said, I, I quoted him in this a number of years ago on Easter. I love this verse. He says the, this, this quote. He says, the worst thing that could ever happen to you in your life is never the last thing. 
And I would add to that that the greatest thing that could ever happen to you in your life is never the best thing either. The greatest thing is coming. Jesus will return. And every great thing that you have ever experienced on this side of eternity will be what a, but a foretaste of that feast that will last forever. And until that day comes, Christian, we're not just called to taste the kingdom as it comes to us any more than the disciples were called to stay up on that mountain. If Jesus came down from the mountain, you are called to come down from the mountain too because you cannot love the world with the love that God has given you unless you come down. And God has given us a beautiful illustration of this. If you've been watching the news, has anybody seen this, this revival that's been taking place in Kentucky, Asbury University, show of hands? You've seen it. I mean, it's on every news source. They mentioned it at Quake last week, and I said, I don't know what these, what are they talking about? They looked it up online. That was, that was, um, that was one of the many pictures. Um, Asbury, Kentucky, Asbury University, it's in Wilmore, Kentucky, and, and it was one week ago Wednesday, if you don't know the story, one week ago Wednesday, so this is 240 hours ago now, <laughs> if you're doing the math, they got together for a chapel service. And their chapel services are just like our church services. I imagine they're about an hour long. They sing a couple of songs. Pastor gets up and gives a sermon, right? Maybe they share communion on some regular basis, and then they go, and they're dismissed, and this is what they do, and this is what they've done, and this is what they do every Wednesday, except a week ago Wednesday, they gathered together for chapel, and they never left, for 240 hours, they have been nonstop singing. And, it, and it's not because somebody locked the doors. <laughs> and it's not because the preacher doesn't know when to stop talking. <laughs> it's because the students wouldn't leave. They just keep singing and praising and reading the Bible and sharing testimony and crying out to God. It's amazing. Look it up on YouTube. You can find videos of what's going on. Don't watch the YouTube videos of the famous people that are going there and saying, oh, I came to stop it. It's not about them. It's about what God's doing in this place. You look at that sanctuary, there's nothing overly remarkable about it. There's no screens. There's no, no fog machines. <laughs> There's no celebrity preachers that are coming in and out. I don't think they're letting them in, actually, when they show up. There's none of those things. And yet for every person that has been in awe of what seems to be taking place in Kentucky, there have been an equal number of people that have been asking the question, is this legit? <laughs> is this real? And I had to read up on it because I... I've never experienced a, a, a revival before. Maybe you have. Maybe you were in a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe, maybe you're part of the Jesus movement in the 70s. Maybe, maybe you experienced something like this. But, but for the majority of us, you're probably like me. Is this real? And so I, I asked that question too, and I, I read some, some trusted sources on it, and I learned that, that the way that you really know that a revival is real, that it is a movement of God is not in what happens during the revival. It is what happens when the revival is over. The question is, 
when it's done, does everybody just go about their lives as if nothing has changed? Or does constant praise and worship burst out into the community in the form of love and justice and mercy? And time will tell in Asbury. But I, for one, am hopeful. Because our world needs a revival, don't you think? We need a movement of God that does not end. And it takes me back 10 years ago in this place to that wedding that I officiated where this bride had lost her mother and the last time that they had gathered in this place was for her funeral. Every wedding I do, I ask the couple as we're preparing for the wedding, are there any elephants in the room? Is there something going on in your family or has gone on in the past that you want to speak to? Sometimes it's joyful. Maybe there's been a whole bunch of babies born, right? And so, so we want to know about that. We want to praise God for that. But when I asked that question to this couple, they said, yeah, there is something. And they told me about the fact that the bride's mother had died. She and her sister, they were, they were just in, I did both of their weddings, and, and they, were, they were just in middle and high school when their mother had passed away. And the last time that their family had stepped foot in this church together was for that funeral. And so I said to them, I said, we, 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 let's talk about this. How do you want to address this in your ceremony? There's two options that I can think of. The first one is that we don't have to talk about it at all. We could minimize it. We, we don't have to say much of anything. And, and, and I will completely understand, I told them, I will completely understand if that's the path you choose. And it's not because they did not love their mother. It's because they loved her so much that maybe it would just be too painful. That's one option that we could have chosen. But then the second option that I offered them and the option that they ultimately chose out of their love and motivated by their hope was instead of not naming it, they wanted to name it directly. They said, we want to bring it up in the service. We want to name mom. We want to pray. We want to point out that her love and her influence and her presence is all over the legacy that she has left behind in this wedding and on this day. And then after the ceremony, the tangible way in which they chose to do that was to go out those doors, right out those doors after the ceremony, and release biodegradable balloons that went off into the sky. And I will tell you, as somebody who was there, that they did not release balloons into the sky thinking that their mom is in some faraway place where she will never come back from forever. They release the balloons in the sky in the hope of Jesus that there will come a day where the one thing that separates all of us will no longer be. That is death, illness, pain. Because our eyes will literally be wiped by the gentle hand and it all is true because Jesus came down from the mountain. And the rest of the quote that I shared on Easter that Sunday a number of years ago, I didn't share the whole quote. Frederick Buchner, he said this. He just died this last year. He said, the worst thing isn't the last thing about the world. The worst thing. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best thing. It's the power on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock bottom. Worst of the world 
like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even. Yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray that that would be so, Lord Jesus. May it be so because it is. Because you came down from the mountain, these words are but a reflection of your words, of your light, of your truth, of your hope, of your justice, that you came down not from the mountain, but you came down from heaven to be with us, to be one of us, to live the perfect life that fulfills every law and every prophecy that has ever been spoken from up high or down low. And then you came down from the mountain to die on a cross on a hill. You came down from a mountain where you were glorified as you should be, as your face shone in indescribable ways. You came down from that mountain and instead you chose a tree on a hill, a cross that that we have no reason to believe was not used to kill other people before and after you carried it. And you died on it. And then you were placed in a tomb that wasn't even yours. We call it borrowed. And what a beautiful thing to call it. Because you only needed it for three days. Three days later, as the women came, You weren't in the tomb. You were not on that tree. You had risen. And then they began to understand that you didn't come to give us beautiful moments on this side of eternity, even though you do, but you came into this world to invite us into a moment that will never end. The day that is coming when you return. And until that day is here, we cling to that hope. We don't try to live in the past because we can't. And when we see what's coming, we would never want to. And our mission until that day is here on this day is to ourselves, just like the disciples, come down from the mountain as these students and people who have come from all around the world, this week they're going to come down from this revival in Kentucky. Because as the university has shared just in the last couple of days, it is their heart and desire that it would not stay there, but that this would be released. That was your desire too. Jesus, you said... 
You said that one would come that is even greater, that your followers would do greater things, that you would be present with us in spirit until the very end of the age. We believe that you are. For every balloon that we release, we remember that you will come back. And not only will you come back, but you are closer now than you have ever been.